take your Bibles out this evening and I'm going to have you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. An anchor for your life. Again this evening I want to address uh, men on Men's Day and uh, a challenge for you and I about how we can keep our lives on track. Okay? Now, before we get into our text tonight, I think I want to turn to another text uh, that's sure to start a church fight that we can finish out in the parking lot, okay? Uh, probably one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament. And uh, ladies, you may wonder why I read this text on Baptist Men's Day. This is not a slap against you, regardless of how the text reads. But I want to turn the idea of the text upside down to say to us men, shame on us. Okay? Thank God for all the ladies that have stepped forward in the history of Christianity because so many men have sat down. But we know what God's intention is. Now this is a text that liberals hate. A guy at Trinity Evangelical Seminary has searched the academic literature of 2,000 years of church history. And do you know the traditional understanding of this text did not change or was not challenged until 1969? What had happened in 69? The sexual revolution and the feminist movement. Not until 1969 had the traditional understanding of this text been challenged. Liberals have put forth six different interpretations to try to avoid what the text says. And as they've shown, every one of those arguments falls apart and collapses in on itself. No reason to reject the text as it reads. It reads what it says, what it says, and means what it means. But again, ladies, I read this to say to the men, shame on us. 1 Timothy 2, 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. 
And then you turn into chapter 3, and every single adjective about a, a, a pastor or an elder or a deacon is in the masculine. And if that doesn't settle the argument enough, he says, let a pastor or elder or deacon be the husband of one wife, a mia genukos andros. Now you tell me how a lady can fulfill that, being the husband of one wife. Again, what's my point, men? Shame on us. We've sat down. We've sat down. Ladies have had to step forward because a lot of times men in the home and in the church and in the community, men have been slack about what God ordained our role to be. Okay, now our text. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Would you stand for the reading of God's word please? Beginning in verse 1, Paul says to Timothy, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jannes and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Lord, we pray tonight that you would be pleased to open our hearts and minds to this text. Help us understand exactly what you had in mind. As your Holy Spirit moved Paul along to write this. Lord, we pray that we would look at what is being taught here and that we would take the Scripture, the Word of God, 
to be the plumb line and the anchor for our lives. How can a man be a man of God in today's society? We need to be men of your word. Lord, correct us where that's needed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Unbelievable. Unbelievable, I thought to myself, as I listened to members of a newly founded church describe its beginning. It started when several members of a church sensed the need for increased Bible knowledge and began attending a community Bible study where they learned that their pastor's denials of Christ's virgin birth and resurrection were at variance with what the Bible actually taught. They came to see that, though their church weekly said the Apostles' Creed, their pastors had personally redefined the terms so that they could repeat the words without actually believing them. Their leaders viewed the incarnation and resurrection of Christ as metaphors for God's presence and life-giving source, not actual historical events. When parishioners protested, they were told they were bringing dishonor to the body of Christ by their divisiveness. The intimidation worked and they quieted down. After all, they were only lay people. But the situation reheated when one of the pastors was discovered to be an active pedophile. And it was further learned that the local church authorities knew it and had been covering it up. This time their parishioners would not be put off. They demanded changes. Again their response was that they were dividing Christ's body and must no longer meet for Bible study or else. And so it was that Bible-believing, creed-confessing, biblically orthodox group of Christians whose only great offense was believing in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ and in His ethical teachings, they were the ones who were kicked out of their church. Unbelievable. Folks, added to that is the daily atrocities we're exposed to in the news now. Somewhere in the world, all the time, Somebody is brutally murdering somebody else. So whether it's things like this in the church going on or things that we read in the headlines, it, it just sometimes seems like will it never stop? And we know that the Bible teaches us it's not going to get any better before Jesus returns. But I hope that doesn't discourage you because as Paul says in Titus 2.13, he says, we are to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the great God, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so you and I have a great and a sure hope as believers. We know how it all ends. God's written about it all in the final chapter of His Word. I've mentioned to you before how Dr. Vance Havner used to say he was thankful to God that there was no Satan in the first two chapters of the Bible and there's no Satan in the last two chapters of the Bible. 
Now, in the meantime, you and I shouldn't be taken off guard by evil. We shouldn't be surprised at what we hear around us and what we see. We shouldn't be surprised by what we read about some churches getting into. We shouldn't be surprised about what we hear some church leaders even advocating because the Bible makes it clear that before the second coming of Christ, this world is going to grow more evil, not less. The book of Revelation even gives us the clue why. Because Satan knows that his time is short. Now Paul wants young Timothy to know that in the midst of the activity of Satan and in the midst of a world that seems out of control, the believer is not to grow discouraged. On the other hand, you and I are to be alert. We're to understand plainly that we have an enemy. The Bible says he is as a roaring lion going about to and fro in the earth seeking somebody to devour. We're to see that God has not abandoned this world. He's not abandoned believers. In fact, things are right on schedule. And Timothy needed to know that. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 has a word to say to us. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, as you know that your work in the Lord is not in vain. And so Timothy needed to know that the believer is both warned and he's equipped. Well, let's see how that plays out in the text. First thing I want you to see with me tonight is the perversion. The perversion. Look again at the first five verses. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having the appearance of godliness but denying its power avoid such people now just read the different ways the translations handle verse 1 you can kind of get an idea of what Paul's trying to communicate here he says remember no mark it down be quite sure realize this that difficult times will come Some say dangerous times, others violent times, others difficult times, finally others perilous times. Philip says the times will be full of danger. Now the word for perilous here is interesting. In Matthew 8, 28 it is translated fierce or violent. Same word that's used here. And in Matthew's gospel, it is used to describe men who are actually demon-possessed. Now, as Paul closed out chapter 2, he told Timothy that some men are held captive by Satan to do his will. Folks, the Bible makes it very plain that as time time goes by, demonic activity is going to be on the rise. Hence, the dangerous times, the perilous times in which we live. 
Now it's interesting how that in chapter 2, Timothy was to remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, whereas in chapter 3, he is to remember the times. The implication, I believe, is that the only hope for times like these is Jesus Christ who's been raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father, and one day he's coming back for his bride. He's our only hope. Now look at the way the evil is described here. What are the signs? What are the perversions? He says men will be lovers of self. They will be lovers of money. They will be lovers of pleasure. That's the devil's unholy trinity. It's a three-headed idolatrous God of self, money, and pleasure. And all the other perversions listed here seem to kind of grow out of those. Now folks, doesn't that sound like a commentary on our modern culture today? And so we ought to be seeing the signs right in front of our eyes that we are near the end. Now of course in the Bible, in the New Testament, the end was anything after the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ ushered in the end times because He's the climax, the, he, He's the pinnacle of all of God's communication to people. There's not going to come another Savior. Jesus is who the Bible was leading up to. And so with the birth of Christ, what we celebrate at Christmas, the end times were ushered in. We've been in them now more than 2,000 years. But what's being implied here when we see these type things happening, surely we must know that we're near the end of the end. Time is of the essence. He says men will be lovers of self. He's speaking here of an exaggerated and inflated love for yourself. Men will put themselves before God. Now what's the great commandment say? Remember when Jesus was asked on one occasion, what's the greatest commandment of all? And he responded by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. This is the greatest commandment. And he went on to say, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. But here we see that this love has been inverted. It's been turned upside down and stood on its head. Instead of lovers of God, men have become lovers of self. Now we know there's a proper way to love yourself. As I just mentioned, the second greatest commandment that Jesus spoke about says, Love your neighbor as yourself. And so you and I need to find our self-worth in Christ. You and I are persons of value because we've been created in the image of God. Christ redeemed us and He died on the cross for us. And so you and I need to see our self-worth and significance in Christ. We need to live for Him and glorify Him. But as Paul says here, men are perverting this now. They're putting self on the throne of their life. They worship self. Me, me, mine. What's in it for me? And then lovers of money. In the last days, people will be lovers of money. Is society today all about money? It is, isn't it? Everything's all about money. 
Almost any major city across this nation, certain areas of that city you could go into and, and for the car you drive or the shoes you have on your feet or the hat on your head or whatever, a dollar in your pocket, you can lose your life for what you have on your body. People snuff out a life over an $85 or $100 pair of tennis shoes. Lovers of money. Now I want you to see the natural progression here. On the one hand, if you love God and put Him first, you'll love the things of God. But on the other hand, if you love self and put self first, then you're going to love the things of the world. And then lovers of pleasure. It's another form of idolatry. We don't bow down to wooden idols today in modern culture, but we do seem to worship pleasure. What's the, what's the motto of today? What, what's the logo of today? If it feels good, do it. We become a very hedonistic society. It doesn't matter who you hurt. It doesn't matter if it pleases God. If it pleases you and makes you feel good, then go ahead and do it. All authority is despised, even God's authority in a humanistic culture. And that's how it is. We have followed Israel at a very bad time in their history. The book of Judges where it says, Every man did as he saw right in his own eyes. And remember, those were dark days for Israel. We're repeating that mistake. He goes on to say here, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Quite a list. It's not very complimentary. We'll pick out a few words. Heartless there in verse 3. It's a loaded word in that list. It's got a number of nuances. It's only used here and in Romans 1, 31. It can mean inhuman or without natural affection or without family affection. Now there's a number of ways to deal with that word. It seems like today nobody really cares for their loved ones anymore or their fellow man. And so the natural love that people once had for one another is gone. That's one way you can interpret that word. Another way is how we're seeing folks do all kinds of unnatural and inhumane things when it comes to others, even their own family members. I read a couple of years ago about a, about a couple who chained their children away in dark closets. They grew up in those closets and when they were found, they were living in their own human waste and they were toothpicks, they were pencils, they were nearly dead of starvation. Now that's sickening and that's unnatural. And that's what this word refers to. Another word, another way it can be interpreted for our day-to-day -day is, is look at homosexuality and lesbianism in our culture. They're trying to ram that down our throats every chance they get and try to make everybody believe that somehow or another it's normal and natural. It's not. Verse 4, treacherous and reckless. The first word is the same Greek word that was used to describe Judas. Judas, who became a traitor to Jesus. 
Men will turn their backs on their best friends today. Traitors. Unappeasable, irreconcilable is another word here. Have you ever met people that simply will not forgive or be reconciled? Sometimes that happens in families or friendships. It can even happen in churches. It's another one of the signs of the end. Men will be irreconcilable with one another. Is there anybody that you're irreconcilable with? You might want to rethink that. That's given as a characteristic of those who follow Satan, not Jesus. Irreconcilable. And then you look at verse 5. Look at what he says there in verse 5. He says, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. In other words, Paul is pointing out to Timothy, Timothy, I'm not just talking about people in the world out there. Timothy, I'm talking about people that you're going to run into in the church. In fact, in its purest context, Paul is warning Timothy of people in the church and even people in leadership. They're religious because after all, there's that God-shaped vacuum in all of us. And so there's the outer appearance of the shell of religion, but the heart is unchanged. They have denied the life-changing power of the glorious gospel. You look at this list in these first five verses and you see that that there is absolutely not one redemptive quality in any of these verses. There is not one redemptive quality listed here. Not one. What's Paul's advice to Timothy? He says to Timothy, stay away from people like that. Now folks, that is the only imperative in these verses right here. That's the only imperative, okay? The only imperative. Sometimes people, like he's just described in these first five verses, you just simply got to stay away from them. You've got to avoid them. Maybe there's been attempts to win them. And they won't be won. You just got to let them go. He says, avoid them. Again, the only command in this list, avoid them. Look at the examples that he gives beginning there in verse 6. He says, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jannes and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was of those two men. In verses 6 to 9, Paul applies this to those who have denied the Christian faith and they're now teaching falsehood. While the men were away during the day, these false teachers would weasel in and divide and conquer. Now, now ladies, remember something here. In ancient times, the women would stay home and nurture the children. They weren't involved in the, in the issues of life when it came to discussing the, the, the theological matters of the day, the political matters of the day, the business matters of the day. And, and so they weren't informed. Not because they couldn't be. It's not derogatory in that sense. They just weren't. They were busy in 
the home, rearing the children. And so some of these religious shysters would weasel in and try to convince the ladies who were maybe either new believers on the one hand or weak believers on the other hand. They would try to draw them away from their faith to get them to abandon the orthodox faith. And if they could get her to abandon the orthodox faith, she could hold sway over her family, at least over her children. Now he names two examples out of Jewish wisdom literature and and compares them to these people he's talking about. He names two men specifically who opposed Moses. They would try, remember what they would try to do. They would try to mimic Moses' leadership and try to sway the hearts of the people. But, But folks, in the end... Paul is actually, I think, encouraging Timothy because he points out here that Janus and Jambres, finally, they ran their course. In the end, what God did through Moses and Aaron prevailed and all of those who tried to stand against Moses didn't get very far and eventually Pharaoh told Moses to leave with his people and get out of Egypt. And so he assures Timothy that God's going to judge all this ungodliness and all of those who reject the faith and those who live as though they have depraved minds. God's going to bring them to an end. He's saying even now they're running their course. James Davison Hunter wrote a book in the late 1980s, Evangelicalism, the Coming Generation. In that book, he talked about a new wave coming. It's going to hit the church in America. Unfortunately, it's here and it's been here. Let's entertain people. Let's try to meet their needs or what they think their needs are. There's a radical shift away from worshiping and living to the glory of God with God-centered lives. And the shift has been to more self-focused worship. What makes me feel good? What do I enjoy? What do I not enjoy? Again, it's me, me, me. Services might get bogged down with prayer. That's not entertaining enough for modern man. We've got to keep things moving. Take prayer and reflection out because after all, with prayer and reflection, it might make people feel bad about themselves anyway. Let's remove images of the cross. might be offensive to somebody. Let's change the architecture. Church architecture used to direct the mind upward to heaven. That was on purpose. That was the purpose of steeples and the general style of buildings and the stained glass windows. It was to change somebody's composure from the moment they walked in. That was the purpose. But people in modern times like malls. Let's make our churches look like malls. People don't like stuffy hymns with doctrine. They like their rock stations. They like their doo-wop songs that don't say anything at all. So let's do more of that. Preaching, let's take preaching out and replace preaching with movie clips and, and drama. Again, we've got to do everything to titillate the senses, make it entertaining and fast and loud and lots of lights. 
Let's stop doing biblical studies and discipleship. Families like activities and sports. People want fun. Let's do fun. Let's do that. And so as he writes, in church life there's been this radical, radical shift away from a God-centered worship and a God-centered focus to more man-centered. What do we like? What makes us feel good? What entertains us? As Chaplain Hughes point out, this shift of gravity to self must be resisted with every ounce of energy we have. As they point out, the great commandment will never change. And the great commandment is that we're to love God with all our hearts, minds, and bodies, and souls. Well, the thought comes to mind, wow, Paul, if all of this is going on, going on even back then, and Timothy's going to face more of it, and think about how much more of it we face today. What in the world is a man of God or a woman of God? What in, what in the world is a Christian family supposed to do today? Is there any hope? Well, he points out thirdly, the prescription. The prescription. After spelling out the problem, God gives the prescription. If we have a physical problem, we go to the doctor, we get medicine. How about medicine for their soul? Well, first of all, in the prescription, he talks about the work of God. Look beginning there at verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. And yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Timothy needs to stay at the work of God. In the midst of a corrupt society, stay at God's work. Keep your head on. Keep your head on. Avoid getting caught up in what the world gets caught up in. And Timothy is being told here that he's had a good mentor in this. Paul has been a father in the faith to Timothy. It's important to have good examples. We look, we look at the good examples in the church as they carry out the work of God and we see them faithfully serving in the Lord's vineyard and we see how they handle all the ups and downs and trials and setbacks of life and we're thankful for all of these people who are good examples to us. And men, you see what Paul is doing here to Timothy? Paul is, has actually lived his life in such a way that he can point to himself as an example for young Timothy. Wow, think about that. Could you point to yourself as an example? 
Timothy had been able to witness Paul as, as everything Paul went through. There's no way Paul could have been charged with being a lover of self, a lover of pleasure, and a lover of money. He, he mentions here just what he went through in his first missionary journey when he went through the area of Galatia, there at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. The mob stoned him to death, drug him outside the city, left him for dead. He got back up, went back into the city preaching. The last thing you could say about Paul was Paul was loving himself. Or loving pleasure. And so Timothy's encouraged in an evil society to keep his eyes on good examples. Paul's been one of those. The work of God and the examples that we have. That's one prescription God has for us. As we look around and see all the men and women that we admire who have kept the faith and we see the witness of their lives and what their lives stand for and we admire them. That's certainly one prescription. But the main one he gives next is the Word of God. He says here in verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you've learned and what you firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Timothy's to continue in the Word of God. The word continue here means to make it your constant dwelling place. It, it, it's the very same word that Jesus used in John 15 when he said, Abide in me or remain in me. We are to remain in Christ and we're to remain in the Word of God. Timothy is to make a dwelling place in his heart, in his life, and his mind for the Word of God. It's an anchor that God has given to us. You can tell a lot about somebody's spiritual life or their maturity by their attitude to the Word of God. And are they in it? Is it transforming their lives? Too many of us have a Bible in our hands and not one in our hearts. We're not to grow discouraged. Likewise, we're not to be deceived. Paul wrote in Colossians 2.8, See to it that nobody takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Philosophy can take you captive. Tradition can take you captive. But we as believers are to make sure that the Word of God takes us captive. Verse 15, Paul says, you've known the sacred writings. That's a Jewish expression that referred to the Old Testament. The Jews prided themselves that by age five, their kids were nurtured and discipled on the Word of God. They had a saying, our young drink in the Word, the Torah, along with their mother's milk. 
Paul said that through the sacred writings, Timothy had been given a wisdom that has led to his salvation. It's just like I spoke of this morning. The Word of God, through the Word of God, we learn of our sinful condition that we're dead in trespasses and sins. In that condition, we're alienated from the life of God. And if we die in that situation, it is hopeless. We will go into an eternity without Christ. We learn of our condition and we learn that God has done something about our condition. He sent us a Savior, His Son, Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. God uses the instrument of His Word in bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ. He's saying, Timothy, you've had that experience. And also Timothy needs to keep himself immersed and grounded in the Word of God because of the nature of the Word of God. In verse 16 he says, it's God-breathed, it's, it's inspired. The Bible is more than simply a human invention. It has more than human writing and human wisdom behind it. It's God's holy Word. Folks, as one scholar said, when, when the Bible speaks, we need to understand that God speaks. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. And not just some of it. He uses the word here, pasa, all scripture. Pasa, without the definite article, implies that every single part of it, every chapter, every verse, every book, it's all inspired. The Bible doesn't simply contain the Word of God, and you've got to try to find which sections those are. No, what he's saying is the Bible is the Word of God. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. Not one jot or not one tittle of my word will pass away. And those were the smallest little parts of speech in the Hebrew, like an apostrophe and a comma. Not a jot, not a tittle of it will pass away. It's inspired. And Timothy is being told he can build his life on God's Word. It'll, it'll be a firm foundation for him. And it'll be an anchor for him in all these rough waters of society that he's experiencing. And then he goes on to say here that it's profitable for, for teaching, for doctrine, the content of what to believe. The Word of God shows you what to believe. Folks, we're in a day and age today, the church has got to get back to doctrine. In First and Second Timothy both, Paul says, guard your doctrine, guard your life. We want to say today, if somebody just loves Jesus, that's enough. Well, that's primary. Do they love Jesus and know Jesus? But I tell you what, you need to know, you need to know what the Word of God teaches about things. God's given you His Word to teach you about life, to teach you about creation, to teach you about heaven, to teach you about what you and I need to know, to teach you about relationships. There's doctrine that you and I need to understand. And a man of God today, needs to understand doctrine as again as Paul said to Timothy guard your doctrine and guard your life because he said to Timothy as you guard your doctrine in your life you will ensure salvation for both yourself and for those who hear you
doctrine. Then reproof. The Bible points out where we've sinned. Then correction. It doesn't just point out where you've sinned. It points you in the right direction. And then for training. It's God's owner's manual for living. You and I as believers have one book made up of 66 books that we're supposed to master. One book. Surely, men, we can do better than we're doing. Verse 17 points out this correcting and training has a purpose. That you'll be competent, equipped for every good work. God doesn't want you and I tossed to and fro by every little thing that comes along. He wants you and I to live stable Christian lives. And we won't be able to do that without knowing and doing the Word of God. These are difficult days. You might be going through some difficult day in your own way. A trial or tribulation. Don't be discouraged. God never told you and I that it'd be easy. But it will be worth it. It will be worth it. So in a society where men love themselves. And men love money. And men love pleasure. Men in the church, we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be lovers of God. Keep your head on straight. Keep your focus. Stay at the work of God. Take up the Word of God. Make a dwelling place and, uh, for, for God's Word in your heart. Let it be your roadmap. If you don't know Christ, it's your roadmap of finding Christ. It tells you to repent and believe. You need direction in life or teaching or equipping or encouraging. God will do all of that through His Word. And so every day, make sure there's, there's time and place in your heart for God's Word. The prescription for these days in which we live. Let's pray together. Father, help us to be men of God, men who love you, not lovers of self or lovers of pleasure or lovers of the world or lovers of money, but God help us to be lovers of Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be that example that other people coming behind us could point to. Lord, the men in this congregation right now tonight, some of them going through all sorts of different things. Just reveal to them afresh and anew tonight that they need to take up your word to be their anchor. Those winds, those crashing waves can be scary at times. All the changing things in the culture. They need to hide your word in their heart that they may not sin against God. Lord, help us all to do that. Lord, we don't want to just get by. 
Help us to grow and flourish in our Christian life and impact others. For Jesus' sake. Lord, help us in our own hearts, in our own homes, and God, in this, your church, help us to be God-centered. Not thinking, what do I want? What makes me feel good? But what do we need to do to live to the glory of God? May it be so. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hymn of invitation, Jonathan's going to come lead us. Just privately right there in your seat tonight. Maybe there's a commitment you need to make in your heart about God's Word. Maybe you've been one of those tossed to and fro and you need to get back to this. Pray that you'd be that example for your kids, your grandkids, those around you. You could be that person like Paul could point to himself and tell Timothy, follow his example. Is there a man in here tonight that needs to come to Christ? That's your greatest need. You may not realize it, but that's your greatest need. In fact, everything else pales by comparison to that. It's no time like the present.